Thank you for joining the conversation today. I'm Randy Gu, the Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the new podcast series, The Rose Library Presents, Atlanta Intersections. The Rose Library promotes access and learning, equity and justice by documenting, preserving, and making accessible distinctive and diverse collections and records. And we foster original research and critical engagement with the past by engaging diverse communities through innovative outreach, programming, and exhibitions. Atlanta Intersections explores how lives and places are bound together in the city we all call home. Today I'm talking to Chad Radford, an Atlanta music writer, editor, and founder of the website RadATL. All right, so let's start with the basics. Where are you from? Well, I grew up in southwest Iowa in a town called Glenwood. I was born in, a, in an even smaller town called Hamburg, Iowa, which may or may not exist. I know that Iowa got hit uh, with some flooding pretty hardcore, and I think that entire town was washed away. I, I don't know if they've rebuilt it or not. I haven't been back there in a while. You know, when I and my friends were old enough to drive and skateboard and go to concerts and stuff like that, um, we all hung out in Omaha and Council Bluffs. And, Omaha, to me at that at that time, felt like a big city experience, and it was. You know, there was a lot of uh, ethnic diversity there at the time, and it probably it's probably more now. Do you remember when you realized music was something special to you? Was there like was it a particular record, a particular show? Was there something where you realized how important music was to you, or was going to be to you? It's it's hard to pinpoint one thing because I have memories of being in like fifth grade and uh, like the Beastie Boys "License to Ill" came out and I and I remember just connecting with that really hard and Run DMC's "Raising Hell" and even Metallica's "And Justice for All." Uh, I haven't checked the dates and I don't know off the top of my head, but in my mind, those all kind of happened in close proximity to each other. Um, but I, but I remember buying those tapes and just having that experience at a really young age, sitting in my room and, uh, just listening and having that almost religious like experience. I, I, you know, I mowed lawns to make money. And I remember, uh, I had a, like a two for one coupon to go to, uh, disc jockey at the mall and and buy you buy one tape you get two and i I, on the same day i bought never mind the bollocks here's the sex pistols and misfits walk among us and both of them kind of it was like it's especially the misfits um it just altered my dna on contact when i heard that music it gave me confidence to do things it gave me it gave me it was empowering and 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 it it gave me an identity i mean i embraced being like a punk rock skateboarder 100 percent, and it was mine and my brother didn't understand it my mom tried to understand it my dad was just kind of like oh well and my stepdad hated it and uh but and it, it was it was it led me to everything at some point i picked up hunter s thompson's uh fear and loathing in las vegas and I thought, 
I read that book at way too early of an age, I should just say. And cause I, it, it's, I mean, I think a lot of people go through that obsession with him early on. Uh, but I was also reading things like Ken Kesey. I read Lester Bang's psychotic reactions and carburetor dung at a really early age as well. And I really liked it. It's weird. I, I really liked how personal he made everything. I was taught in college to not write in the first person, and um, I still don't, and I kind of despise it. Um, but I see how effective it is when it's used properly, and uh, I, I, it, I, I'm very conflicted about Lester Bangs because I don't think he was a great writer, but he did great things with what he with his ability. I mean, you work with what you got. And he had incredible access to Kraftwerk and Public Image Limited and Lou Reed. And and his style is very singular. And I'm happy that he did it, but I am not going to imitate it. Were you interested in writing first and music became a way to explore your interest in writing? Or were you interested in music and writing was a way to explore music? Like I knew I was interested in writing and and i and i was better at writing than i was at like playing football or wrestling which were like in in small town iowa if you're not wrestling or playing football you, you're pretty much a communist and uh, and and so i i was naturally gravitating toward that but i think music was music kicked open the door for everything one thing that divided the small town where i grew up from the city Omaha across the river was this natural land formation, Luss Hills. That's L O E S S. And they, they only occur in two places in Southwest Iowa and in China. And they are the result of hundreds of thousands of years of glaciers kind of pushing the richest, blackest topsoil down. And so it's there, these giant black dirt mountains which were really mysterious and cool. I like to think that they really kind of influenced a lot of my taste and aesthetics and thinking and things like that. So when, when did you come to Atlanta? I moved here in 1999 uh, after graduating from the University of Iowa. You know, at the time, I lived in a house in Iowa City with, with Laura, my girlfriend and partner. And I graduated, and we both agreed that we kind of wanted to leave the Midwest. You know, I, I was thinking we we're going to move to Chicago because we'd already been there a lot and hung out a lot and I knew the city. And, you know, Laura's like, mm, it snows in Chicago. I don't really want to be where there's snow. So I started looking at Atlanta and I, the CNN was here. And at the time there were two daily newspapers. It was the, the journal and the constitution were still doing like a day and an evening edition. Laura found out that one of her high school friends uh, was living here at the time. She doesn't live here anymore. Uh, but she said, yeah, I got plenty of space. You can come stay. And it was way out in Gwinnett somewhere. And, uh, and I couldn't find it today if I tried. Um, but I think she didn't explain to her roommate that this young couple with two cats was moving in until uh, we found a a job and a home. And well, I think we were there about a day before her roommate said, y'all got to go. And so we just got in the car and started driving, like having no idea about how the city is laid out and magically wound up in little five points. And so I found wax and facts. I found criminal records, Aurora coffee. And we walked by Junkman's daughter 
and there was a help wanted sign in the window. And it was kind of, in retrospect, that was probably the greatest thing that could have happened because it was right there in little five points and every musician in town was either at Criminal or Aurora. And then when I finally got hooked up with Creative Loafing, uh, you know, people knew that I was my during the day I was at Junk Man's Daughter, so they would pop in and give me a CD and go about their business. So, but you know, I was always looking for like the next thing, the next thing. And so, what was the Atlanta music scene like when you came to Atlanta? I mean, you talked a little bit about the clubs and all that, but what what was the scene like when you got here? In what in '99? Iowa City is a college town. It's a lot like Athens uh, in Iowa, and it was a very intellectual music scene at the time. Um, Bill Clinton was president. Everybody was kind of partying. And so, I, and it was in close proximity to Chicago. So, you know, like Tortoise came through and played and, and all of those sort of math rock, post-rock kind of bands were coming through. That's what all the local bands were trying to sound like. That was kind of where I was. And, and I moved here and I remember I went to a show at the 513 Club. It was like piebald and no knife. And everything was was punk rock. And uh, I went to the Star Bar and I saw skinheads. And every, it was like everyone was wearing like black denim and, and like, you know, denim jackets with patches on them and like with rebel flags on them. And, and I was like, man, where am I? So, you know, pretty early on, I, I sort of – I latched on to the more experimental stuff that was going on in town. I'd, I'd, I'd written about Richard Devine. I'd written about Prefuse 73. Um, I saw the Gold Sparkle Band play a reunion show at iDrum, and I had never experienced real-time jazz like that, um, especially anything so far out. Uh, I, I have a very clear memory of sitting in the basement at iDrum and – the Brevar Large Ensemble performed, which was Robert Cheatham's band and pretty much every horn player in town. There was literally like like 14, 16, 18 people. Uh, and then Gold Sparkle. It was a revelation. It was that I had never encountered anything like that. When I was in the Midwest, you know, there was a little bit of a, of a hardcore scene in the suburbs of Omaha, but it was all still very rooted in like classic hardcore, like Minor Threat, and, but it was sort of morphing into this new phase of people wearing like Adidas and, and, and fights breaking. It was very macho, very tough guy. When I came to Atlanta, there, I wrote about a group called Odophobia, which is, I think that means the fear of opening one's eyes. And, and they were a hardcore band, but it was really crusty. And it was I and it was like Southern hardcore was something I had not encountered yet either. I was fascinated by being someone who's coming from like a writer's background at the University of Iowa, where there's a really rich writing program and tradition there. Kurt Vonnegut was was teaching the writers' workshop when I was there, but I was way into like Walker Percy and and Faulkner, and I think I was looking for this sort of spectral Southern weirdness. And, uh, and, and I found it in, 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 in subtle and not so subtle places in the music. Well, and that's really interesting. So what do you mean by Southern? What was, what is Southern hardcore, right? It's kind of an intangible quality, but it's also, it's, 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 it's just a different mode of being. Um, every, everything that was, 
that, that I was picking up on music from the in in Omaha and Iowa, it you couldn't have described it like this, but it was it was almost uptight. Everything was like a manifesto, and and when I came here, I'd never seen improvisation before, like I saw with Gold Sparkle and with uh, Brevard Large Ensemble, and and even with the electronic music, and even with the hardcore music. I was listening to there were there was like open space in the music. It was it was slower at times. It was sludgier, uh, and it, it was and it was. I would see like I remember some of the guys in Odophobia would like shave half their head. It was like they were shaving their head, and the power went out, so only half their head was shaved. And it was just sort of this like there was there was not as much there was no pretense. It was it, it felt more real to me, and it felt more inviting to me. Like I didn't, I, it was it was more accepting. I think with any kind of punk rock or hardcore scene, there's always going to be an element of what are you bringing to the table? Why why should we let you? hang out with us you know and and part of it is like well i'm here you know i made it this far and and you know others it's like you're either working the door you're a journalist you're in a band like what what do you bring to the table and 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 i think that in the south it was more just kind of like we already know (laughs) you know when i when i think about otophobia or i think about uh leech milk or, or I think it was like there was this understanding. Like you would walk into a room and you would see metalheads hanging out with punks, skinheads, skaters, ravers maybe. And, and everybody was cool with that. In the Midwest, those lines of distinction were much, much stronger. And um, I was really into that. I liked that kind of cross-blending cross of, of cultures, so to speak. So, Chad, how did you get your start at Creative Loafing? I went and did my interviews at CNN, and I did an interview with a with a publisher that was kind of out by the perimeter. And none of those jobs panned out. And you know, in the meantime, I discovered Creative Loafing. But, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I had been searching and searching and searching Atlanta, and Creative Loafing never really came up in my searches. Um, but I learned about it. I started picking it up, and I started just bombarding the music editor there. You know, by the time I got Ronnie Sarig, you know, he was asking me, "What are you into?" And and so he said, "Well, write a record review." I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but I wrote a record review of the brand new um, Holger Holger Suke or Zuke from Can, like had a new album out at the time. So I wrote a review, and but the conversation was write a review. And if it's good, maybe we'll think about printing it. So I was like, okay. And, uh, you know, it was 150 words. And I think I spent 48 hours of nonstop sleep and stress writing it. Cause I had to impress them to get this job. And, um, and they printed it in a very strange place in the paper. I think they needed uh, some filler back near the classifieds, and they, and they put it in there. And I, I think I still have a print copy of it somewhere around here, but then, you know, Jobs kept coming available at Creative Loafing, and I applied for anything I could possibly get, and they just wouldn't hire me. And and uh, then finally, I got a job as a staff writer, and then uh, the the music editor. Genre wise, what has been the arc that you've seen um, in your time here? 
it's been interesting to watch. Um, I've seen entire music empires come and go, and I've seen entirely separate scenes come and go. They're not related at all. I guess I'll kind of preface this by saying, in the last 20 years, let's just say, just as an example, I wrote about 5,000 bands. You know, that's obviously an exaggerated number, but they have 5,000 musicians came at me over the last 20 years, and I wrote about their records. Uh, Only three of those bands achieved what you would call success by any means. And those were like Mastodon, Deer Hunter, Black Lips. Um, There have been others that have come close. I remember Zoroaster was really skyrocketing for a minute and Withered. And there, there have been lots of, lots of bands that, that really percolated and, and did great things, but didn't quite get up to cruising altitude you know, get the get the pitchfork stamp of approval and 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 what have you. But I I will say I saw I have seen over and over again people just throw their entire sense of of being like every ounce of their life is dedicated to their music and and being successful at it. And they were beaten down by the system and uh, and faded into the background. And, uh, you know, two years from now, I'll be at a truck stop in Ackworth or something like that. And I'll see somebody standing in line behind me. And it's like, hey, I remember you. I mean, it happens all the time. And um, so, you know, I've seen that, you know, and it's like I, I, I mentioned that I saw a lot of skinheads in Atlanta when I first moved here. That scene has completely died and gone away. There's kind of a new version of that music aesthetic but not like i mean it's definitely not political and it's very racially open uh people call it street punk it's like post oi and uh there's a really good band in town called the antagonizers that they do that billy fields and whom we probably both know plays in that band um and and that's and in and, and that's it's and i say that it's kind of uh uh uh, descendant of that because I mean it's people who are into like the, the there's the skinhead culture from the UK with like Fred Perry's and Doc Martens and a lot of tattoos it's like a bunch of they look like tough guys like brawlers but when you go to a show it's nothing but dudes giving hugs to each other and and I like that a lot and and the music's good and um it's a very it's a very weird inviting scene uh, because it visually it looks intimidating but the, some of the people I've met are like the friendliest people on the Atlanta music scene that I've ever encountered. And um, so, so that's been an interesting evolution. Um, you know, we've talked about Mastodon and I, I, I was there, I worked at Junkman's Daughter with Brent Hines, with uh, Bron Daler and, uh, and Bill was around Troy, Troy wasn't around too much, but he was he was around. Those the other three were always there. Their original singer Eric Zayner was working at Junkman's with us, and uh, I, I kind of watched them form. I, and I'll never forget. I have a memory of being at Junkman's daughter, working in the shoe department upstairs, and um, Braun had been sort of promoted to like the t-shirt guy. I think he was like the buyer. And so I, I remember Braun coming out of the back with a boom box and saying, now, now give this a listen. Let me know what you think. And it was just like a demo without vocals. 
and it was Iron Tusk, and and it was amazing. It was they ripped, and he's like, "What do you think? Is that okay?" I'm like, "Dude, that's awesome." And uh, he's like, "Well, I don't. We're we're still thinking about it. And, you know, we're, we're putting it together." And I was like, "Hell yes!" And I I remember um, when they when the first video they did came out and. We all kind of gathered in the break room at Junkman's Daughter and watched the first Mastodon video. And I was just like, this is going to be huge. And it, and it got huge and huge, bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and um, just being like, wow, this is – I watched this grow <laughs> from – Braun was in Today is the Day, and, and so was Bill, and that band broke up. And they were still, I think, on a contract with Relapse to make two records or whatever – and so they formed Macedon to do that, and and it was it was magic from the word go. I think part of the thing that made the Black Lips and Deer Hunter so successful right out of the gate was that uh, <clears throat> they were on the rise at the same time as the internet, and so people were trading those songs and, and learning about it from afar. You know, back in the '90s, people would always talk about selling out being a bad thing. And I remember there was that movie, The Reality Bites, about sort of the purity of your product getting ruined by commercial influences. And and people people took a hard line against stance against that kind of stuff. Like my my music will never be used in a commercial. It will never be, you know, anything that you know sells a product or something and now that's like the only way musicians make money is if they're not touring and it's not frowned upon you know if like if your band scores a song in like a red bull commercial or a car commercial people are just like celebrating so i mean i'm not against people making money on their music but it's that has been a massive cultural shift in the music how has gentrification affected uh, atlanta's music scene you know, I, when I moved to Atlanta and, uh, you know, I found little five points that, you know, I lived in that neighborhood for 17 years. I, I didn't realize how much things had changed until I was literally forced out of my home. And and that's something that really bothers me about Atlanta is that, is that just that, that happens. Where every, everybody I know lives in a different neighborhood now. Everybody is kind of scattershot across this gigantic city. When I moved to Atlanta – it was this interesting place where you could live as cheaply as you as you wanted to. I could write music journalism and get paid twenty five dollars a week, and uh, and still be able to supplement my income enough so that I could pay what needed to be paid, and just sort of get by. It's not that kind of city anymore. It's it's still cheaper than New York, Chicago, L.A., Philadelphia, Miami. But it's going up. I think the problem is you have all these people with, with all the money coming from like Lawrenceville or, or, or wherever the suburbs they're coming from are located. And, and they don't have any idea of what it's like to live in a neighborhood or to live in Atlanta. And, and they have no sense of history. So they just tear things down and put the ugliest buildings up that they can possibly, you know, put together for the lowest dollar amount. And it's nothing that's going to last. And I've always said people should be really documenting what Atlanta looks like right now because these buildings aren't going to be here in 50 years. Why did you decide to start Rad ATL? Yeah, Rad ATL is a website that I started uh, to be a vehicle for my music writing. Um, and it's just radatl.com. And uh, it's 
if you, there are tabs, there's there's sections for Atlanta shows, for interviews and podcasts, new music. Over the last five to eight years, I am being hit up with with emails from musicians who are great, world-class musicians. And they're saying things to me like, I can't get anybody to review my record. And, and, and part of that is, you know, we've talked about hip hop and the hip hop is such a dominant cultural force. And the outlets that are commenting on music have become so few and far between that they're just desperate for whatever they can sell. You know, like we need, we need to get a Red Bull sponsorship. So we need more hip hop. And, and and there is great hip hop in Atlanta that is not being talked about, but everybody's sort of vying for that big Atlanta, and uh, and and they're not reciprocating. And um, so I, I was like, I'm just going to start this website, and I've really tried to kind of zero in on those artists in Atlanta that I know uh, or that I know of who are doing what I think is great work, but aren't getting any attention. And two, two of the biggest stories that I've run, um, I did the interview with Monty Naismith from Simmerip, who lives in the metro area now. Uh, and it, it was kind of a, I was discovering his legacy as I was writing about it. And he was playing this festival a street punk festival over at the Earl. And, and so then I was stepping out of my comfort zone because it's like, you know, this is not the avant-garde. This is, this is like, like working man, punk rock and ska, you know, which in where, where I grew up, that was kind of a dirty word. And, uh, and, and so, but I, I met this guy and I met all the people that he was sort of working with and I, and I fell in love with him. And so I wrote this story and I put it out. And I thought, well, that was that was fun. I'm really happy with that. And immediately, like I'd watch the stats on that story, just like thousand, two thousand readers, three thousand. Somebody in Japan read this. Somebody in Greenland read this story. Somebody in in like Belgium read this story. And it was just like all these European countries started lighting up, and African countries. I'm like, wow, people are really interested in this. And you know, and, and I saw kind of the same thing happen with Clay Harper. Like I knew that record was coming out. I knew it was going to be brilliant, and and I knew that it wasn't going to get any attention in Atlanta. I mean, despite that guy's legacy, I mean, I don't think he's suffering uh, at all. But he made a beautiful record, and I didn't see anybody in Atlanta paying attention to it. So I reached out to him and said, "Hey, let's do a story," and uh, he was he was game. And I got to talk to him. There's a lot of incredible talent on that record. And AJC's not going to write about it. Uh, you know, Stomp and Stammer's not going to – I mean, they, they might address it or give it an acknowledgement, but that guy deserved a deep dive. And uh, and I know a lot of the musicians on that record, and they're all world-class talent. And so I thought, this is great. I'll make this story happen. Don't know if anybody's going to read it, but I'm going to do my all to make this Pulitzer worthy. And again, immediately the stats, which is like boom, 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 boom. So I think people in the world are desperate for good writing, but there, but the bullshit has has just kind of drowned it out. And I think, you know, everybody is kind of on this rhetoric of our attention spans are so short. You know, Facebook has kind of ruined everything, and everything is now, 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 now. 
you know, scroll down to refresh. And, uh, but, but I have found that, that if you write a good story, it performs a hundred times better than the short things, you know, the quick hits, the stuff, the meaningless, you know, here's a band camp player by this awesome band. Check it out. <laughs> you know, if you have something to say, there's people who want to hear it. So that's what ATL is to me. So it's, it's like to kind of wrap it up. One of the things about Atlanta intersections is to talk about the past and bring it into the contemporary, bring it to today. So what, what about the Atlanta music scene excites you now or what bands, what records? You know, that's a really interesting thing to, to think about because of the pandemic situation where we can't go out and see live shows and you see all these people doing their live streams and, and things like that. And I, you know, you got to give a shout out to uh, Brian Malone, who has really worked hard to create his um, live streams, something different and cool. Uh, Kimono My House has done a really killer job of just rallying people and, and keeping keeping it going and keeping that energy up. And you see a lot of, a lot of cool names and faces. And, and uh, the most recent thing that really – kind of knocked my socks off was the live stream that uh, thousand air and warm red played at the Earl. I mean, it was the closest thing I've seen in, in terms of live streams to kind of recreating that feeling of waiting in line at the bar or standing there waiting for the next band to play while the DJs are, are playing music and you see your homies walk through the crowd and you give them a nod or whatever. And, and it really, it really had that feeling. And, and I think, you know, that's partially because it was shot at the Earl, partially because the, the media team that put it together was sort of tinkering with the visuals. And um, it really stands out in my mind as, as, as a really special thing. And it was all done as a benefit for the Earl staff, but also I'll go on record and say that both thousand air and warm red have released new albums during the pandemic. And they are both solid contenders for Atlanta's album of the year. And, uh, and they're very different. You know, thousand air is kind of on like a meat puppets trip and uh, warm red is more Jesus lizard, uh, big boys birthday party. Uh, kind of thing, and I, and I love both of those records immensely. And and it it it's it's a it's a damn shame that we can't go out and see music right now because both of these records I can I can see like if if in any other any other circumstances both of those records would be like household names at this point. You know, thanks lists are a real important part of hardcore culture, and so. Um, do you have any, anybody you want to give a shout out for on on the thanks list? Uh, this this is the thanks list portion of the program. Man, we would need another hour to to fill up all that time. But uh, you know what? And uh, this is fresh on my mind because I just did the art papers symposium this weekend. Um, but I want to give a shout out to Randy Castello, Tight Bros Network. He was one of the first people that really made me feel welcome in Atlanta, and uh, and we, we've been partners in crime to various various degrees over the years and uh uh he deserves a shout out more than anybody i know the, the, that entire idrum crew uh from when i was new in town marshall avitt uh woody cornwell rest in peace uh will lawless stan woodard robert cheatham uh, i know he's in in mississippi now i believe 
but that that whole crew, I, they, my perception of Atlanta was shaped by the the very strange and very beautiful music that I heard at Idrum. And um, I, I feel like I owe them a debt because of that. I'm really happy that they're coming back with a new location. Skateboarding and punk rock saved my life. Chad, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Atlanta Intersections is produced by Randy Yu and Nick Twomlo. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor, and the legendary band with no name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our music. Atlanta Intersections is grateful for the support of our colleagues at the Rose Library, especially Lolita Rowe, Community Outreach Archivist, Jennifer Gunter King, Director Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to the Tots Till Death crew, Joe Strummer, and Crass for inspiration. Please join us next month for episode two of Atlanta Intersections. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Atlanta Intersections and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds. 